We've made our way over the last few weeks through the first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans, and we're now in the middle of chapter three. That doesn't sound exactly right, but that's accurate. We've gone through two and a half chapters, and we're now in the midst of chapter three. Let's begin reading with verse 21. You'll notice that at this point in the book of Romans, Paul turns a corner. The paragraph begins, but now. It's always important to note these, uh, these changes of direction. Uh, when I was a youngster living in Texas, I was going home one evening, and it was late at night, and I was having difficulty staying awake. I was following a truck, a beer truck, Lone Star Beer Truck, and I still remember the logo on the back because I was mesmerized by the truck. And uh, apparently the driver of the truck fell asleep because the road made a sharp, right-angle turn, and he didn't turn. He went across the ditch through the field and straight into the front of a white farmhouse, right into the living room. The, uh, no one was injured, but uh, the farmer and his wife woke up in the middle of the night to have a truck coming into their, uh, into their bedroom. And I almost followed him because I was watching the logo on the truck, even though I knew the turn was, uh, the turn was there. Uh, that's the danger, I suppose, of missing a turn uh, in direction. And uh, it's important for us to note that Paul is moving in a new direction. But now, he says, we've been talking about the bad news. Now we're going to uh, uh, look at the good news. But now our righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This uh, righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement, or as some of your versions have it, a propitiation, a propitiatory sacrifice, through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just. And the one who justifies the man or the woman who has faith in Jesus, where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? Uh, no, but on that of faith, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by his faith? Not at all. Uh, by this faith, not at all, rather we uphold the law. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we come to uh, a passage in your word that is very difficult to understand. We pray that you would give both me and those who hear clarity of understanding and the, the ability to, uh, to see this passage for what it is. Help us to understand it clearly. And help us to apply it thoroughly. 
we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I was on my way through the Boise Airport last week to pick up Stuart Briscoe. He was here for an Idaho Mountain Ministries Pastors Conference. And I had to pass through the metal detector uh, that is just at the top of the escalators. And uh, unfortunately, I, uh, or fortunately, I was not carrying any uh, metal. I just had a ring of keys, which I held up as I went through, so they realized that the buzz wasn't caused by uh, a weapon on me. But uh, I was assured that if I had been carrying something dangerous, something damaging on my person, that uh, detector would have, uh, would have uh, frisked me uh, quietly, uh, unconsciously, without my being aware of it. I would have been shown for what I was. It occurs to me that uh, this is precisely what happens in the first two and a half chapters of Romans. We, we are frisked as we, uh, as we walk through these, through these chapters. Uh, these chapters don't detect metal, they detect wickedness. And uh, we reveal for what we are. Uh, we're shown uh, to ourselves and to, to those around us the stuff uh, of which we're were made. Uh, this terrible racket, this buzzing goes off as we read through the first few chapters of Romans, and we realize that we, we are found out. We've been trying to cover up our sin, but uh, we're discovered. That's what we can describe in this book as the human condition. That's one side of the equation. That's the human condition. We are sinful. Now, uh, Paul picks up that idea again in this uh, in this paragraph, he's moving on to the good news, but he wants to underscore one more time the fact of our sin. That's why he says in verse 23, in, in that very familiar verse, which many of you have memorized, you know, particularly if you have a navigator background, all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, there, there are many words for sin in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, this is the word that means to miss the mark. The, uh, the word is actually composed of two, two words. One means to uh, uh, mark, a mark, and the other means not, not a mark. We miss the mark. Uh, it's the word that's used to translate the general word for sin in the Old Testament, kata, which means to shoot at something and to miss. Uh, there's an interesting, uh, almost classic illustration of the use of that word in the Old Testament. In the book of Judges, there are some men from the tribe of Benjamin who were slingers. And uh, they were ambidextrous. They, they were switch hitters. They, they could sling with both their left and their right hands. They're described as left-handed slingers because they could hold a sword in their right hand. That made them doubly dangerous. And they could sling at a hair, is the way the text puts it, and not... Chata, not miss. That's the word for sin in the Old Testament. They never missed. Now what Paul is saying is that we always miss. We sling it at a hair and we miss. Now what is it that we miss? Paul tells us it's the glory of God. Uh, we were intended to display his glory and we have missed. Now a glory is one of those concepts in the New Testament that we think we understand until someone asks us to explain it. Uh, glory, that word glory, speaks of God's attributes. The, the word is used in uh, the classical literature of that day to refer to uh, a person's wealth, their worth, their assets, their value, that sort of thing. Glory is, is what God is. It's his character. 
and the and specifically the expression, the manifestation of his character. We're told in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus said of himself, he came to glorify the Father. And then looking back on his life, he said, I have glorified you in my life. In other words, he always acted like the Father. Always. He never missed. His character was impeccable. He always manifested the, the goodness and the glory uh, of, of the Father. Uh, there, there was no sin in him. Uh, there was no racism in him. There was no sexism in him. There was no elitism in him. He treated everyone as equal. Uh, he always did what was right. Now, when Paul says we have failed to measure up to the glory of God, he means we failed to be like Christ. That's the standard. If we're going to earn our salvation the old-fashioned way or any newfangled way, we have to be just like Jesus in our behavior. And... Uh, we don't make it. We haven't done it. That's the point that Paul wants to make. And he keeps underscoring that idea because he wants us to understand the human uh, condition. We have all, that's every single one of us, sinned and fallen short of the character of Jesus, the glory of, of God. Now set against that human uh, condition is the divine character we have seen that over and over in this book. God is holy and just. There is no sin in him. He is characterized by utter integrity. He is righteous. Sin is repulsive to God. He hates it. That may surprise you. It surprises a lot of people because we're inclined to think that God is easygoing, that he's very tolerant, that he is only kind and accommodating, he is only love. We can saunter up to him in our uh, easy, lighthearted way and uh, expect him to include us in regardless of, of what, what we are like. We do not expect the violent reaction to sin that is described for us uh, in both the Old and the New Testament. There are some interesting metaphors that are used for God's reaction to sin. One, perhaps the most uh, vivid, is that it makes him sick at his stomach. That's actually what he says. Now, there's a particular church, in, in, it was in Asia in those days, what we would call Turkey today, uh, that uh, the book of Revelation speaks of. Our Lord is talking about that church, and he has taken them in, and he says, you make me sick to my stomach. I want to throw up, he says, in a very vivid metaphor. But that's, that's his attitude towards sin. He is holy and just. And righteous, he is full of integrity. Uh, he he keeps his distance from sin. There's an interesting idea in the Old Testament uh, with reference to the ark. the The people of Israel did not cozy up to the ark. When the priests picked up the ark on their shoulders, uh, the ark left first, and the people followed a thousand yards after the ark. That's a little better than a half mile. Uh, and, and, and that, that uh, you know, the notion, the, the idea that God wants to get across is that he is separate from sinners. He is holy and justice, uh, just and, uh, and righteous, utterly without sin and separated from it. So this is the dilemma. This is the dilemma that God has to face. This is the problem he has to solve. He loves sinners, and yet he has to judge sin. 
That's the problem. We are sinful and separated from God. And God loves us desperately. And uh, the problem then is how can he get us uh, together? This is what one theologian described as a strife of attributes. How do you put together God's justice and his love? We, We would say it's a conflict of emotions, perhaps. That's the dilemma. That's the problem that, that Paul is, is facing. How can God be just and judge sin and still forgive the sinner? It's stated clearly in verse 26. He did it to, to demonstrate his justice in the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies the man who has faith in, in Jesus. That's the problem. See, you, you understand the problem. God is holy. We are sinful. And yet God loves us. How can he then judge sin and justify the sinner? That's, that's the problem. Uh, the, the, the question is often asked, why, why doesn't God simply forgive? Why doesn't he declare an amnesty? Uh, our word amnesty comes from the same root as our word amnesia. Why, why doesn't he just forget sin and just overlook it? Well, a moment's thought would, would assure us that, that that simply doesn't work. That's not our concept of justice in the world. What can we say of the, of the drug dealer, for example, who destroys uh, the minds of fine men and, and women simply for money? Sh- shall we just forgive and forget? Uh, what about the person who, who gets behind the wheel of a car who's drunk and who takes the life of a young mother and forever alters the life of, of a family? Shall, shall we just forgive and, and forget, you see? As, as John Stott puts it, when we, when we say that, that God simply ought to forgive us, we understand neither the gravity of sin nor the majesty of God. He is not simply love. He is love, but, he, but that word in itself does not encompass his, his character. Uh, he is just as well as, as loving. So that's the dilemma. He cannot overlook sin, and yet he continues to love us. How can he justify us? Now, the solution to the dilemma is in the verses that, that we have just, just read. And uh, uh, explained in terms of one word, it's the word righteousness. You'll notice that word occurs a number of different times. It's translated differently in my, in my version, sometimes justified, uh, sometimes uh, righteousness. Uh, sometimes justice, but it's the same root all the way through. The, the big answer, the one single answer to that question is that God is righteous. He does what is right. But that doesn't tell us enough. Let's, let's take one step further. What did he do that was right and righteous? Well, he brought salvation to us. He saved us. But even that doesn't thoroughly answer the problem. Because uh, salvation is one of those one of those big terms, one of those big rubrics that we use to describe the, the the process by which God calls us to Himself, which in itself doesn't explain anything. Uh, it, it, it's a it's an umbrella word, and we have to put a lot of things under. Uh, I, I had an experience this last summer. We were on our way into Canada, and we came to the border, and uh, the uh, uh, the border guard asked me where I was from, what country was I from. And uh, for some reason, it just popped into my mind. I said, I'm from America. And immediately I saw the little twinkle in his eyes, and I realized what I'd said, because he is an American too. The Canadians are Americans. 
What I should have said is that I came from the United States of America. If you go to Europe and you tell a person you're an American, it doesn't tell them much. You could be a Canadian, you could be a, you could be the United States, you could be from Central America or South America. These are, um, America is the umbrella word under which all these other these other concepts are found. Now, when we talk about salvation, we have to understand the concepts underneath the term, and there are a bunch of them. Uh, the, the New Testament writers use a lot of different words and a lot of different metaphors to try to get this concept across because salvation is such a big idea, you can't express it in merely one, one word. One term that the New Testament writers use, which Paul does not refer to here, is the word regeneration, uh, popularized by Chuck Colson. The idea of being born again, although he didn't originate the term, Jesus did. He said to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Regeneration describes the change that takes place within. God gives us a new heart, new inclination, a new way of looking at things, a whole new life. It doesn't happen immediately, but there is a, a, a change. That's one of the marks that someone has become a Christian. It's their outlook is a little different. My, my father used to tell a story about uh, uh, a woman that was in a Bible study. I, I've, ne I've never known whether this actually happened to him or whether he just tells the story because it happened to someone else. I mean, he didn't tell it of himself, but it, I've forgotten the details. But there was a woman in a Bible study, and they were discussing uh, the miracles of Jesus, and there was a young man in the group that was having a problem understanding the, the miracle of changing water into wine. And he questioned that. He challenged that. And this woman said, well, I don't have any question with that, whether Jesus can do that. Because she said, my, my husband, John, used to, he'd get the paycheck, and on the way home he'd stop at the bar, and he would spend most of the money on whiskey, and then he would come home, and there wouldn't be any money left for groceries, and we and the children would be hungry for the next week. But when my John became a Christian when he met Jesus Christ as a Savior. He started bringing his paycheck home. He wasn't selfish any longer. He didn't spend the money on himself. He'd bring it home and he'd hand me the paycheck and, and I'd buy groceries with it. She said, I don't have any problem believing that Jesus can turn water into wine because he turned whiskey into groceries. <laughs> now, see, that's regeneration. That, that, that's that's the, the new life, the new birth, see. Now, there are other, other terms. Uh, the, the word reconciliation is in, an interesting term. The idea is that God is already facing us. The problem is that we're running away from God, and, and we are reconciled. God turns us around so that we realize he's not mad at us any longer. There are a lot of other terms that are used. But the three that Paul uses here are justification, verse 24. We are justified freely. By his grace. That's the first word. The second word is redemption. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a, my text has a sacrifice of atonement. If you have a New American Standard, I believe it, it reads propitiation, a propitiation. Or some may say an expiation. Theologians have had a, had a field day with this, with this term. Now, it's these three ideas that Paul brings into play at this point, and this is the way he explains the conundrum, the, the dilemma that we're facing. How can God be just and justify the sinner? He did it by justifying us, by redeeming us, and by atoning for our sins. 
And, and you're probably thinking, oh, no, here comes a heavy sermon on theology. You know, this is time to check out, catch a few Z's. And, and I just want to explain, these are not, in Paul's mind, these were not theological terms. Now, Paul was a rabbi, and he knew theology better than any of us. But he isn't, he isn't using theological terms. Justification, in Paul's day, was not a theological term. It was a term from the courts. It was a legal term. It was on everyone's lips. Everyone, everyone knew what justification meant. The, 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 the term redemption was a term from the marketplace. It was not a theological term. The only, the only term here that had, there was anything you could suspect was theological as the last, propitiation, because it did come from the realm of religion. But interestingly enough, it came from the realm of pagan religions. And not necessarily from, from Israel's religion. So these were terms that were in wide use. Paul works very hard to be very, very simple. Let, let me say something to those of you that are teachers. Because as a teacher, I feel this very keenly. One of the things we must do, well, actually two things. We must never bore people with the Word of God. We, we need to work you know, showing people the relevance of Scripture so we don't put them to, put them to sleep. Teaching the word is a terrible thing to do people to do to people, to bore them with the word. The next thing we ought to do is simplify everything. We need to work hard at simplifying truth so people can understand it. As Corey Ten Boom used to say, K-I-S-S, keep keep it simple, stupid. You know, just <laughs> keep working at it. Keep working at it. I, I read an article this last week about John Scully, who's the president of uh, Apple Computers. And uh, he was talking about the Macintosh made an interesting comment. He said, the Macintosh is very, very easy to use. And it is. If any of you have Macintosh computers, you know that within 10 minutes, you can be using one of their word processing programs. Very simple computer. Very user-friendly, as they say. It's not threatening at all. Very easy. But it is probably the most difficult computer to program. The programmers worked hundreds of thousands of hours in order to program that computer so it would be simple. It took a lot of thought, a lot of energy, a lot of time in order to make that thing simple. And I, that's what Paul is doing, and that's what we need to do in our proclamation of truth. If you're, if you're a teacher, you need to understand the concepts and then work hard and long to make it simple so people can, can understand it, see? Because that's, that's, our, that's our job, is to make truth understandable, simple. Now, that's just a commercial. I, I won't charge you anything for that, but I, that's just a word to all of us. All of us teachers. I think that's what Paul is doing here. Now, this term justification, as I say, is a, is a legal term. It came out of the courts. Uh, some people say that a good definition of justification is just as if I'd never sinned. That's the way God considers me. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Now, that's not bad. It's catchy. It's easy to remember. But it's probably not inclusive enough. The term actually is the equivalent of our legal term today, not guilty. When the jury comes in, the clerk uh, asks uh, the, the foreman of the jury to rise and to announce the verdict of the, of the jury. And the foreman will say, we find the defendant not guilty. Now, if he were in a Greek court, he would say, uh, dikaio, uh, righteous, not guilty. Uh, or guilty. Guilty is the, of course, is the opposite concept. Now, what Paul wants us to understand is that God declares us not guilty. 
That's interesting. You look back on your life and you think of the abortion or the divorce that you know just shattered someone's life. The cruel, the unjust things that, that we have done. How can God look at us and say we are not guilty? <laughs> well, it's because, as Paul puts it, uh, we are justified freely by his grace through the, re- the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What happened is that God put our guilt upon the Lord Jesus. And he bore our sins in his own body on the cross. He paid for our sins so we don't have to. He took the rap. He bore the consequences. So we don't have to suffer the consequences of our sins. You see, someone had to pay for sin. And God did not want to send us to hell to pay for our sin. And so he sent his son to hell. So the sins would be paid for so we can be redeemed. Now what I envision, suppose I get, uh, I defraud someone and I I get caught. I'm caught red-handed. I'm guilty. No question about my guilt. I don't have a leg to stand on. Uh, I stand before the court and I plead guilty. The judge says, all right. I sentence you to pay a million-dollar fine. Bang! Brings the gavel down. Court case dismissed. And he goes off into his chambers. And there I stand. I've got a real problem. Actually, I've got a million problems. Uh, how, how am I going to pay that debt? I can't pay that debt. I, I'm guilty. I have to admit it. The, 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 the fine is just. I can't pay. And something amazing happens. The door opens and I see the judge coming. He doesn't have his robe on anymore. He's taking his robe off. He comes around to the front of the, of the, uh, uh, the desk and, and, he, and he gets out his checkbook and he says, How do you spell your name? And, and he starts writing out a check for $1,100,000. And, and he walks over to the clerk of the court and he hands him the million-dollar check and he says... This is to pay his fine. I am going to take the responsibility for, for paying the consequences of this man's evil act. That's justification, you see. I am declared not guilty on the basis of the sacrifice that the judge makes. So I say to the judge, what's the $100 for? He said, that's to take your wife out to dinner because uh, justification calls for celebration. You see what I'm saying? He paid the price. He paid the price. Now, the second word that Paul uses is redemption. It comes right out of the marketplace. In fact, one of the words for redemption in the New Testament is not this word, but one of the words for New Testament in the in the in, in the uh, for for uh, redemption in the New Testament is the word ex agorazo. And you know, and any of you know anything about uh, the, about uh, Greek history? You know that the agora was the marketplace. So ex agorazo means to buy out of the marketplace. But this is a little different word because this word means something in, not entirely different but something more. Now let me explain. Suppose you're, uh, you're a slave. You've been uh, captured in, in war and you've, you've been uh, taken from your country and your family and, and your friends and, and you're brought to the center of the Roman Empire, right to Rome itself, and you're put on the block and there you stand uh, naked. Normally they strip their prisoners. And you're standing there in, in chains. 
and uh, people are bartering for you. They, they, they want to buy you. They want to purchase you as a slave. And there's a man at the back of the crowd who keeps uh, up in the ante. He keeps raising the, the, the price, and he keeps offering more and more and more. And when someone bids, he bids higher. And eventually he buys you for a million dollars. And you're thinking, oh, my goodness, what does this man want me to do? Why does he want me so much? He must have some terrible fate in mind for me. And uh, when it's all over, he comes and takes the chains off of you, and he takes you to the store and buys you a whole new wardrobe. And, and he starts out of town, and you're tagging along after him, and you say, well, what do you want me to do? And he says, uh, well, you're free. And I, and I said, wait, wait a minute. I'm your slave. And he says, well, you know, if you want to serve me, that's fine, but you're free because I have bought you out and set you free. Now, that's what the word means. I've bought you out and set you free. That's redemption. He paid the price. We couldn't free ourselves. It cost him immeasurably. It cost him the life of his son, an infinite debt uh, that we owed, that he paid. That's redemption. Bought us out, set us free. The third word is the word atonement. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, or in the in my footnote it says, as the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away sin. That's an attempt to try to uh, put both elements into this word. Uh, the, the word propitiation means to appease the wrath of the gods. The word expiation means to wipe away sin, take away sin. And both of those ideas are here. Theologians argue about which is here. I, I just say both. I mean, that's the simplest answer to that. They're both here. That the wrath of God was appeased by taking away sin. Now, this idea of appeasing the wrath of God was one that was uh, uh, that was understood in the ancient world. Archaeologists digging under the foundations of of houses there find these little little jars about so big, full of little tiny bones, infant bones, and they they know what what happened. The the owner of that house, when they built the house, sacrificed their child put them in that little little vase and buried it under the foundation because there was the idea that the land belonged to the gods. And if, uh, if you built a house there, you angered them, so you had to appease their wrath by offering up your child's terrible practice, you see. But everybody understood. The gods were angry. You had to appease them in some way. You had to offer up a sacrifice. That was a propitiation which wiped away our sin, the sin of building our house on their land or whatever it might be. They understood. They knew. But you see, it wasn't that God demanded the sacrifice of your, of your youngest child or your firstborn. It's that God demanded the sacrifice of his own son. He himself was the propitiation, the expiation, the atonement for our sins. Most translations say atonement because this is the word, this particular word that Paul uses here is the word that's used in the Old Testament for uh, the atonement. In Exodus 17, there's the, uh, the law concerning the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, we say. We know what that is from our Jewish neighbors. That's the high and holy day, actually the only uh, fast day, which is, uh, it was given in, under Mosaic law. Uh, it's the day on which the sins of the people are atoned for, where the wrath of God is appeased. How, how did he do it? How did he justify, redeem, and atone for our sin? Paul tells us in verse 25, it was in his blood. That is, it was, it was through the cross. 
Uh, Isaiah puts it this way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. This wasn't an afterthought. This was planned from the foundation of the world, that the Son of God would come as the Lamb of God to take away our sins. Uh, Isaiah 53 goes on, the prophet goes on to say, We esteemed him smitten of God. They couldn't understand why he was rejected, why he was a man of sorrows, why he was nailed to a cross, which was the most degrading thing that could happen to a Jew, to be hung on a tree. Why? must be God judging him. They were right. It was God judging him, but it was not God judging him for his sin. It was God judging him for their sin. That's the point that Isaiah makes. He has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That explains that terrible cry in the darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, God forsook him because he became sin. He became a dirty old man so that we could have new life, you see. The father had to turn his back on him, had to forsake the son. The son had to bear the consequences of hell. He went to hell because the sin of the world, my sin, your sin, to personalize it, was placed upon him. He, Paul says, became sin for us, the one who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God uh, in him. And that's how he did it. He did it by his blood. And the way we get in on it is simply to believe it. That, uh, that idea turns up a number of places in this, in this paragraph, verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And then again in verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice atonement, uh, a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And again in verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies the man who has faith in Jesus. Uh, Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk and professor of theology at Wittenberg University and he, he, he was desperately trying to find God. He described, uh, he described his, his uh, behavior, his practice this way. I was a devout monk who wanted to force God to justify me because of my works and because of the severity of my life. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I must say, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, I would, ne- I would have gotten there as well. If I had kept on any longer... I would have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other works. The the members of Luther's order were concerned for him because they thought he was going to take his life. So eager was he to do the will of God, so anxious to try to do what God had pleased him, so uh, what God what pleased God, so frustrated because he couldn't pull it off. And then he came across this uh, this passage. Actually, uh, as we understand, he had never read the Bible; he had only read theology. See, Thomas Aquinas, others, came across this passage. We maintain that, I'm reading verse 28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law, and it all fell into place. And he came to realize that it was by faith, by faith, that we accept it. And it's by faith in Jesus. Do you see that? Verse 26. 
not just faith in general. Someone asked Marilyn Monroe what she believed in once. She said, oh, I believe in everything a little bit. And that's uh, very often, uh, you know, that's, that's the way we take this. You just, you just believe in God in a general way. You just have faith. But what Paul says is that it's faith in Jesus. That is the belief that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we do not have to pay the consequences of, of our sin. Can't earn it. Can't earn it. That's why Paul says uh, there's, no, there's no place for boasting. We can't uh, put our thumbs behind our suspenders and march around, talk about what we have done. We can't, uh, can't earn salvation, can't earn any part of it, can't contribute to it in any small way, can't, uh, can't get it by works. It doesn't come that way. C.S. Lewis said that there are really only two religions in the world. There's Christianity and everything else. Real Christianity and everything else. Real Christianity, authentic Christianity, says that you can't earn any part of it. Can't pick up the tab, can't even pick up the tip. You can't earn any of it, not any of it at all. Every other religion says you, you have to contribute something to it. What Paul wants you to know and what I so desperately want you to understand is that, that you don't have to earn it. It doesn't cost you anything to get into it. The cost was, was God's cost. It cost him everything. To quote Martin Luther again, because Christ has become a king and a priest for you and has bestowed this great blessing on you, you dare not imagine that it was done for nothing or cost little or comes to you because of your merit. Sin and death were overcome for you in him and through him. Grace and life were given to you, but it meant bitter work for him. It cost him everything. He earned it at the greatest expense with his own blood, body, and life. For to put down God's wrath, judgment, conscience, hell, death, everything evil, and to gain everything good could not be done without satisfying divine justice. This is why Paul is in the habit of touching also on Christ's suffering and blood whenever he preaches God's grace in Christ, in order to note that all our blessings were given us through Christ, but not without his unspeakable cost. It cost him everything. It cost us nothing. We just have to have to enter in. That's that's the other thing I'd say about faith, and that's the last thing I want to say, is that it's not enough simply to believe the truth. You have to receive it. You have to reach out your hand and take it. It's the only way to get it. A lot of people believe it up here, but they've they've never they've never reached out and taken it. Uh, last August, Carolyn and I. Celebrated our 29th wedding anniversary, coming up on 30 here shortly. I have a lot of vivid memories of those uh, weeks that surrounded our uh, wedding and our honeymoon. But one that I recall from time to time is something my father did for me. I, I had just come out of the out of the military, and I was poor as a church mouse. I was working for the YMCA, and and it took all the money that I'd saved to buy the engagement ring, and that's about the best I could do. And Carolyn was going to school; she didn't have any money. My father was fairly well-to-do, but he was wise enough not to, uh, 
not to try to help me out. He was just letting me struggle along and do the best I could. And But I you know, I came up a week or so before the wedding without any money. I didn't know what in the world we were going to do for a honeymoon. I really wanted to take Carolyn to Colorado. I used to work up there in the summertime, and I wanted to take her up there and, and let her enjoy some of that some of that country, and I couldn't afford it. My car was about to fall apart. I didn't know what I was going to do. And uh, I will never forget, about a week before the wedding, my father called me into his office, and he handed me the keys to his Cadillac and two credit cards, a standard credit card, gasoline card, and his regular uh, plastic money card. And he handed that to me, and he said, I want you to go to Colorado. I want you to take my car. My car wasn't air-conditioned. His was, and it gets hot in Texas in August, as you well know. And he said, I want you to take my car, and I want you to stay in the best hotels. I want you to eat in the, in the best restaurants, and I want you to have an unforgettable time with Carolyn. And you know what I did? I said, oh, well, no, I tell you what, uh, I don't deserve that. I mean, that went without saying. <laughs> Nor did I say, uh, well, uh, no, I, you know, I'd really like to do that, but I'm going to delay the trip until I can earn enough money to, to go. Uh, nor did I even offer to pay him back in any way. You know what I did? I just reached out and took those keys. <laughs> I even got to drive his Cadillac for the week before the wedding. King for a week. I just received it. See, that's all God wants you to do. He just wants you to reach out your hand and take it. He's done it all. You have to receive it. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power, the authority, to be sons of God, i.e., those that believe on his name. Let's pray. Father, there's so much irony in a, in a passage uh, like this. We enjoy this free gift purchased for us at, at infinite cost. Eternal life secured through your death. The right to call ourselves your sons because you turned your back on, on your only son. We easily forget what it costs you to be just and the justifier of those that that believe in Jesus. Father, our only response to you this morning is to say thank you. Thank you very much for providing salvation for me. And then to reach out and take it. Grant to us, Lord, the grace to do such. Uh, to, to set aside our pride. To set aside our, our indifference to what you've done and and to, to embrace the truth. And more than that, to embrace your Son as our, as our sin-bearer, as our Savior. Lord, we, we want to thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In conclusion, I, I want to ask you to sing the hymn Beneath the Cross of Jesus because it states so well the truth that we've been uh, talking about this morning. In a moment, David's going to come up and lead that for us. It's number 407 in your, in your hymn book. I want you to...
uh, think about these words as we as we sing them because this is really the heart of the matter. It's beneath the cross of Jesus that we take our stand. There's a verse that's missing from your uh, from your hymn books, I believe. It's an old verse, and for some reason, it, it's not included in any of the hymn books that I I looked through. And I'm disappointed, really, because I think it's it may be the best of all the the verses. It goes way way back. The verse that's left out goes like this: Oh, safe and happy shelter, O refuge tried and sweet, O trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. That's what we've been talking about. Trysting place, that's an old word for meeting place. O trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. As to the holy patriarch, that's Abraham, and we're going to talk about him next week. As to the holy patriarch, I'm sorry, Jacob, excuse me. As to the holy patriarch, that wondrous dream was given. So seems my Savior's cross to me, a ladder up to heaven. That's it. That's it. It's the cross that gives us access to the heart of God. Great leveling effect that these early chapters of Romans have had upon us, the, the recognition of our sinfulness, our solidarity as, as, a, as a race in sin. And uh, we feel ashamed as we look at our lives and our pitiful, puny efforts to try to attract your attention or do something that, that renders you favorable to us. That, that is indeed shameful. When you have already paid the price, when you are offering to us a salvation that is free, Lord, give us the strength to enter in. Give us the humility to set aside our own efforts and accept your Son as our salvation, our Savior and our Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.